What has it got in its pocketses? My precious. These are the famous words of one of the creepiest characters in all of literature, J.R.R. Tolkien's Gollum, also known as Smeagol. Gollum was a simple creature who one day stumbled upon a golden ring. And this was no ordinary ring. It was the ring of power, full of evil. Gollum became obsessed with it. He killed his friend for it. He ruined all his relationships for it, and he took it to a subterranean lake at the bottom of a mountain chain where he could hide and guard his treasure. He loved it so much, he called it my precious. In Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, the ring comes into the possession of Bilbo Baggins. Losing the ring traumatizes Gollum. His world is crushed. And once he gets over the shock, he spends the rest of his life plotting and scheming to get back his precious ring. In the sequel to The, the Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, we discover just how powerful the ring is. And Bilbo's nephew Frodo sets out on a quest to destroy the ring in the volcano from which it was forged. Along the way, Frodo faces many dangers, including the reappearance of Gollum. Frodo, Frodo spares Gollum's life out of pity, but also because he needs a guide through the evil land of Mordor where he can finally destroy the ring. And for much of the trilogy, the reader is left wondering if Gollum is capable of changing for good or if he is just waiting waiting for a good opportunity to kill Frodo and take the ring for himself. Gollum is a pathetic creature. He is obsessed with this object. It poisons his mind and his life, and he is willing to do great acts of evil to possess it. As Christians, one way we could think about this literary character is through the lens of idolatry. Gollum loves the ring. He values it above all else. His thoughts are always filled with it. He obeys it, or whoever possesses it, and his, light, his life and lifestyle is completely dominated by it. The ring is his idol. Today's sermon is all about the danger of idolatry. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. That's toward the end of your Bibles there. If you have a Bible... If you go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and then flip back through some of the short books, you'll get to 1 John. We're at the last verse of the last chapter of the first letter of, of John. We finally arrived at the last verse in 1 John. And while you're, while you're turning to 1 John chapter 5, let's recap our sermon series in this book one last time. A sermon series we've been calling Basics for Believers. John uses basic, simple language, and yet he says profound things. And here, one last time, is our periodic table for the basic elements of true Christianity. All throughout this book, we've seen various tests for each element. There's the truth test, what we believe. There's the light test, how we live our lives. And the love test, who and how we love. If the tests show that we don't have these basic elements in our lives, we probably don't have true Christianity. Today's passage on idolatry, I would argue, teaches, touches on all three tests. There's the truth test. Idolatry goes against the truth given in God's word, and, and believing false teaching can be a form of idolatry. The light test. 
Idolatry is morally wrong. It is a form of disobedience, and it reflects a lifestyle of walking in darkness rather than in the light. And then the love test. Idolatry is ultimately about misplaced love, loving someone or something more than God. Today's verse is a kind of postscript, uh, P.S. at the end of a letter, or the letter, the epistle that is 1 John. But unlike postscripts today, which are often something that we forgot to say in the body of our letter, in New Testament times, the author would often save some short, pithy word of advice or tender love and care for the very end of a letter. It was a way to emphasize this one last truth. John concludes his little letter with a short piece of loving instruction. So let's read it together. Uh, follow along as I read aloud 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We started this sermon series with one sermon covering an entire book, and today we'll end it with one sermon covering just one verse. Let's pick apart this verse, connect it with the previous passage and the rest of the book, and then unpack some of the many applications that this short sentence has for our daily lives. Notice the first words, little children. One word in the Greek, it's the word for child in a form that suggests either the littleness of the child or the tenderness of the, the person using the word. John is not literally speaking to just infants and toddlers here. It's a term of endearment that John has been using throughout the book. In fact, the NIV translates this word, dear children. John is modeling the Christian love that he has been preaching throughout the book. And Paul, uh, plus as one of the last living apostles, every Christian alive is a little child in the faith compared to him. The word is also one of the ways that John moves from thought to thought throughout this little letter. It's sort of like Paul's therefore. What he is about to say builds on what he has said before, but it's still a separate thought, a separate warning based on what has come before. Now for the next word. Here we have the word keep. In Greek, the word literally means to guard. And the grammar suggests that it suggests urgency and the fact that the, the guarding is ongoing. It doesn't stop. It's not a one-time event. The Old Testament tells us to keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life, which is closely related to our topic for today. In the New Testament, we see this used, this word uh, to guard, used to describe shepherds guarding their flock, people guarding deposits, especially the deposit of the gospel message, and soldiers guarding prisoners. Perhaps an army illustration will help. For those of you who went to basic training, what is the first general order? I was pretty weak. I think our drill sergeants wouldn't be happy. They'd come in here and probably make the whole congregation do push-ups. For those of you who've forgotten or maybe repressed that memory, the first general order is, I will guard everything within the limits of my post and quit my post only when properly relieved. Guard duty is serious business for a soldier. There was a time when a soldier could be put to death for violating this order. The Greek word here conveys the idea of watchfulness, like soldiers guarding their post. You could also think of guarding something precious, like jewels or precious metals. Think about the security at the Tower of London for the crown jewels. 
or the security not too far away from here at Fort Knox for our nation's gold supply. We are being commanded to actively and diligently guard something. But what? Let's look at the text. Yourselves. John is telling his audience and us to keep careful watch over ourselves, not just our bodies, but our inner person, the true self that no one sees except God, at least no one sees fully except God, our motives and our desires. From what? What is it that we are supposed to be so vigilant against? What is the threat? Look one more time at the text. Idols. And what are idols? Well, literally, they're carved images that represent false gods. But before we get into all that the Bible means by idols and all that we can learn from that, let's first ask ourselves, what does John mean by idols, specifically in this letter? Well, commentators have two general ideas on the subject, and both of them seem pretty valid to me. First, it could be referring to the many pagan idols in the culture around them, in the Roman world at that time, especially in the city of Ephesus. All indications are that John was writing this letter from Ephesus and that he had the Christians in that area, what is today the western coast of Turkey, particularly in mind. Ephesus was home to the magnificent temple to the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Remember Acts 19? When the Apostle Paul was ministering in Ephesus, many people believed in Jesus, and they burned their books of magic, and they stopped worshiping idols. And the demand for idols went down so sharply that the silversmith guild, who made lots of money making idols, started a full-fledged riot, which included a mob shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for two solid hours. Idols and idolatry were common in that area and at that time. And many of John's original readers had likely been idolaters before coming to Christ. They were like the Thessalonians, of whom Paul commended as those who had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Second, John could be giving yet another warning against false teaching. Part of the reason John wrote this letter is because of people who had once claimed to be Christians, who had gone out and now were teaching false doctrine. They were teaching falsehoods like saying Jesus is not truly God or that Jesus is not truly man or that you can live a lifestyle of darkness and still be a Christian or that you can be a Christian without having love for God or love for other Christians. Believing wrong things about Jesus and the Christian life is the same thing as believing a false religion, which is a form of idolatry. John, who as we know loves double meanings, is probably warning against both false teaching and the pagan idolatry all around him and his audience. But there's also probably a contrast going on here with the previous verse, verse 20. There, John assured us that if we are believing in Jesus, we can know that we know the true God. In our verse today, verse 21, we are being warned against false gods, idols, true God, versus false gods. But we shouldn't just stop there. This urgent warning, given for emphasis at the very end of this letter, should make us think about the broader meaning of idolatry in all of its forms. We need to vigilantly guard against every form of idolatry. 
The Bible has a lot to say about idolatry. If you were to pull out an exhaustive concordance and do a a word search for idol and other uh, forms like idolatry, God, in the lowercase that is, an image, especially carved image, you would find a wealth of material to study. One of the Hebrew words for idol indicates emptiness or nothingness, which is sort of like the word vanity that we learned about in Kyle's series through Ecclesiastes. And while there is some biblical evidence that demons on occasion can impersonate false gods, generally uh, the Bible mocks idolaters to scorn for worshiping dead pieces of wood, stone, and metal. In fact, in Isaiah 44, there's an extended satire about a man who cuts down a tree, uses a piece of the wood to warm himself, and then makes the rest into a god that supposedly made him. God mocks idolatry, and God hates idolatry. Idols were strictly forbidden by the Old Testament law. In fact, at least three of the Ten Commandments, as we'll see, relate directly in some form to idolatry. Idols were the downfall of many Israelite kings. They were a constant source of rebuke from the prophets, and they were warned against in the New Testament, especially in their more subtle forms. I think it'll be helpful for us to organize our sermon today by defining idolatry and then breaking it down into categories of idolatry. This should help us understand idolatry in all its forms so we can examine our own lives for idols and idolatrous tendencies and so we can be on guard against all kinds of idolatry. So to help us understand idols, I created what I call a taxonomy of idolatry. You remember taxonomy, right, from biology class? Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. I'm sorry if I'm triggering anyone. You were traumatized by high school biology. Taxonomy is just a fancy name for categories. Remember all those charts in your science textbooks that looked like family trees? Animals are in one kingdom, plants are in another, and under each are different groups and subgroups for all the various kinds of animals and plants. I hope this chart will help us understand the different kinds of idols and the different ways that we can be tempted by idols. So let's start with the top block. Big picture now, we need to understand just the overarching concept of idolatry. So let's establish some basic definitions. The the best, simplest definition I could come up with for an idol is any substitute for God. Any substitute for God, for the true God, that is. The first commandment says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. God is saying that it is a sin. It is morally wrong to worship anything besides him alone. Accept no substitutes because God accepts no competition for worship. Don't value anyone or anything in the same way that you value God or should value God. So if I an idol is any substitute for God, idolatry is loving, serving, or valuing someone or something more than God. Loving, serving, or valuing someone or something more than God. In other words, it's worshiping someone or something besides God. So then idolatrous is being characterized by the worship of idols, being characterized by the worship of idols, or having a lifestyle of idolatry. So an idol is any substitute for God. And there's really two types of substitutes for God, literal and figurative. First, there's literal idolatry. The second commandment says, 
thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or the ESV says carved image, or, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Literal idolatry is literally taking a statue, image, artwork, or other physical object or idea even, and treating it as God, a false God, or as some spiritual force to be appeased. It usually involves honoring the object in some way. For example, bowing down to it, praying to it, or through it, using it as an aid to worship, or expecting it to bring you good luck or God's favor. Some Muslims take this commandment to the extreme and prohibit any graphic depiction of plants, animals, or people in their artwork. Some Christians believe that there should never be any visual depiction of Christ or other religious symbols or themes. Well, we know that not necessarily all images or religious artwork are necessarily prohibited because God commanded uh, such images to be made for the tabernacle and the temple. Of course, the cherubim, lions, oxen, palm trees, pomegranates, and other symbols were not to be worshipped in and of themselves. Literal idolatry is making some physical object into a representation for a deity to be worshipped, or using that object as an aid to worship. I'd further suggest that there are at least two kinds of literal idolatry, pagan and Christian. While obvious pagan idolatry might not be too common in our culture in America today, the practice is still alive and well in many parts of the world today. Just go to India and see the many idols of Hindu gods for sale. Or go to India and see the many temples to Hindu gods. See, see the temples full of idols to their many deities. In the Old Testament, the worship of Baal was a common temptation to the people of God. He was the god of thunder, and so he was one of the many fertility gods of the age. Fertility gods were often worshipped through acts of immorality. Cult prostitution, both male and female, was common. Molech was another horrible idol from that time period. People worshipped him by burning their infant children alive in his arms. Idolatry, as we saw earlier, was common during the New Testament period. The Roman Empire had a pantheon of gods and goddesses, which included the worship of Roman emperors. And they often allowed conquered peoples to keep their own gods as long as they worshipped the Roman gods and emperors as well. In fact, actual belief in the gods was entirely optional. You just had to go through the motions to maintain civic and social unity. And early Christians were often called atheists in the literature because they would... Uh, they would only worship the true God, and they, uh, Jesus, and they also refused to worship any other God, including the emperor or the other Roman gods. We must avoid pagan idolatry, but we must also avoid uh, mixing it with worship of the true God. This is called syncretism, and it was common in the Old Testament. And this was, a pro this was why the, the, it was such a problem, why the high places uh, during the times of the kings of Judah were such such a problem, and the kings of Judah had such difficulty getting rid of the high places. High places were where people would pretend to worship the true God through pagan rituals. And this is a challenge that many missionaries face today. Many people are all too happy to add Jesus to their shelf of idols, but making him their exclusive Lord and Savior, that's much harder. What are some practical applications uh, for us, besides the fact that we shouldn't have a Buddha statue in our house and offer incense to it? 
we need to avoid pagan practices and allegiances. We need to think carefully about our personal traditions, our clubs, our fraternal organizations, our exercise routines, our mental health therapies, and martial arts philosophies to make sure we are not participating in a form of pagan idolatry. Now, notice I'm not being specific here. That's because the appli this application opens up a lot of issues of Christian liberty. We know that because of the New Testament. Paul states that participating in a pagan ritual meal is forbidden. It's wrong because it's an actual religious uh, ritual. But he leaves the issue of whether you can eat meat that had been previously offered to an idol in a pagan temple up to the individual conscience. So I'm not telling you whether you should let your kids go trick-or-treating at Halloween or not. But let me give you some questions to ask yourself. Question number one, am I participating in another religion in some way? Am I participating in another religion in some way? Am I just applying common sense wisdom or healthy practices? Or am I practicing a religion? Question two, am I required to affirm false teaching about God and the gospel? Am I required to affirm false teaching about God and the gospel? Do I have to say or believe untrue things about sin and salvation and the God who saves us? And question number three, am I required to pledge my loyalty in a way that conflicts with my loyalty to Christ and his word? Am I required to pledge my loyalty in a way that conflicts with my loyalty to Christ and his word? Are my loyalties divided? As James says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Pagan idolatry is forbidden to the true Christian. We must turn to the living God from idols. But then there's Christian idolatry. Does that surprise you that there could be such a thing as Christian idolatry? We can observe Christian traditions in a way that amounts to sinful idolatry. I suggest to you today that it is possible to turn Christian traditions, symbols, objects, rituals, and even doctrines into sinful idols. We do this when we worship or pray to Mary or other quote-unquote saints. We worship, when we worship objects like statues, candles, or pictures, or use them as worship aids. We do this when we elevate Protestant, Baptist, or even evangelical traditions to the level of commands. We could even turn biblically commanded rituals into idols. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, pointed out in his sermon on this very verse that Christianity itself could become an idol. He said, it is possible for us to worship our religion instead of worshiping God. He also said that theology has often become an idol to many people. Theology, the truth about God, is meant for us to know God personally. It's not for us to be proud of our knowledge. Another common form of Christian idolatry that I see all the time is treating Christianity like a good luck charm. Say you love Jesus and then live like the devil. Plant your rear end in a pew for 45 minutes on a Sunday morning, and now in your mind, God owes you. Let's apply this. Don't treat Christianity and Christ like a lucky rabbit's foot. Don't worship things. Don't worship through things. Worship God alone through Christ alone. So there are many ways that we can be tempted by literal idolatry, either pagan or Christian. But probably the way we are most tempted by idolatry today, and in every age, is figurative idolatry. We know for a fact that figurative idolatry is a thing because of the New Testament. Colossians 3.5 says, 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Ephesians 5.5, 5, referring to those who will not make it to heaven unless they repent and believe in Jesus, says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. According to the New Testament, covetousness equals idolatry. Covetousness is a form of idolatry. So given this New Testament definition of idolatry, it brings a new meaning to the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. To covet is to have an intensely strong desire for something or someone. It is evidence of discontentment. And rather than causing us to rejoice in the good of others, it makes us resent or even hate those who have what we most want. There are two kinds of things that we can have intense desire for, things that we can covet, good things and bad things. I know I'm, I'm a big fan for re these really complicated outlines, as you can tell. Bad things. What are some bad things that we can turn into idols? Well, pretty much any sin, moral wrongdoing, disobeying God's moral commands. How many people refuse to even consider Christianity because deep down they know it will probably change their lifestyle? It will mean giving up that sin that they enjoy so much. And there are many sins we could list here, but let's just think of two uh, in particular for now. First is sexual sin. This is especially true today in our day and age when people are constantly told that they should find their, their primary identity in their sexual orientation or in their sexual preferences. Now, don't get me wrong. Sexual pleasure is a good gift from God designed to be enjoyed in marriage, which we'll talk about under the category of good things. But when we seek it outside God's plan, it becomes an addictive idol. Sexual sin is destructive, but it is not unpardonable. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he shared a list of people who are not going to heaven, including those who engage in sexual sin. But he ends that list by saying, and such were some of you. You can repent of sexual sin. You can be washed pure by the blood of Christ. Second sin is pride. Some people refused to come to Christ out of sheer stubborn pride. They can't admit that they need God, or they just want to live in their own little dream world where they are totally independent and self-sufficient. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul, as the poem says, right? If you try to live by that poem, you're in for a rude awakening. Remember our sermon from 1 John 2, 15 through 17? There, John told us to love not the world. And we learned that what he was talking about is not loving the evil world system that is opposed to God. When we love the world in this way, we are making a bad thing into an idol. But as we also know from that passage, we are also not to love the things that are in the world, many of which can be good and wholesome in and of themselves. So what are some of the good things that we can turn into idols? Any good gift from God can be turned into an idol. 
anything wholesome, honorable, or even respectable. You've heard the phrase, don't turn a, God, a good thing into a God thing. Well, we make things into idols when we make them of godlike importance. Now, in the interest of time, let's quickly rush through a list of common idols. What are some of the things that can become idols in our lives? Career. Your career or job, assuming it isn't inherently sinful, can be a wonderful way for you to provide for yourself and for your family and to glorify God. But it can easily become an idol, even if your career is in ministry. When you talk about your career, is it just because it's a good topic of conversation to get to know someone? Or is it because it's an obsession that's always on your mind? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to advance your career? Family. People can turn their relationships, their spouse, their marriage, or the physical intimacy they can enjoy in marriage into an idol. People can turn their children into idols. They either treat their children like a reflection of themselves, or they crave their child's approval more than they care about their child's faith and character. A great way to help you think about how a good thing like love could be twisted and distorted into an idol is C.S. Lewis's little book, The Four Loves. Now, I don't recommend uh, Lewis as a theologian or, a, or as an expositor, but as an apologist and as someone who thinks through matters of Christian living well, he can be very helpful. Health, it's another idol. Some of you could probably stand to be better stewards of your health. Others worship at the shrine of health and fitness. Do you want to honor God with your body, or do you worship your body? Do you worship how your body makes you feel, or the attention you can get from, from others? Sports. Athletics can be a wonderful way to get exercise, uh, to enjoy being with others, and to learn valuable life lessons. But sports can be an idol for many. We all know that the worst cussing and lost tempers happens in church softball leagues. All those people trying desperately to prove that they still got it. We've seen the parents losing their minds at, soccer, at the soccer match or the parent mercilessly pushing their child to succeed in sports. And then there are the people who burn down their city if their team wins or if they lose. Or they become grumps and grouches because their team chokes, all because their sense of self-worth is bound up in a sports team. Pleasure. There is nothing inherently wrong with pleasure just the lengths that we might go to pursue it. Don't let comfort, entertainment, hobbies, a desire for fun and good times, or FOMO, the fear of missing out, become an idol in your life. Home. A house can be a wonderful tool for ministry, especially the ministry of hospitality, but it can also become an idol. If you're a true Christian, your forever home is not a house on earth. It's heaven, so live like it. Animals and pets. Now, God made animals in part for us to enjoy, including for companionship. And unnecessary cruelty to animals is wrong. The Bible is very clear on that. However, animals are not created in the image of God. Only human beings are. So if you love or care about animals more than people, you are sinning. Politics and politicians. Here's a timely one for today. Political involvement can be a good and healthy thing, but not when it becomes an obsession or when it causes you to destroy relationships or behave in unloving ways. How do you respond when someone criticizes your favorite politician? Do you feel like you've been personally attacked? 
Why is that? We could also add to the list a desire for control or the desire for approval, also known as peer pressure. Introverts could make privacy an idol, and extroverts could make other people into their idol. And self is the most common idol of all. We naturally put ourselves at the center of our own universe, but that's where God alone belongs. This list could go on and on, and any of God's good gifts can be turned into idols. As the saying goes, don't let a good thing become a God thing. Worship God, not his gifts. How can we identify our idols? Let me suggest some questions that we could ask ourselves to help us identify the idols that we have in our own life. What do I spend my money on? How do I spend my time? What is more important to me than my relationship with God? What is more important to me than spending time with God in prayer and Bible reading? What is more important to me than gathering with other believers each week? What, when threatened, makes me frightened? What, when taken away, makes me enraged or falls, makes me fall into the depths of despair? Perhaps you should spend some time this afternoon asking yourself, what are my idols? But what should we do when we identify our idols? Destroy them. Now, let me qualify that statement in several important ways. We have no right to damage public property or other people's private property. <laughs> you laugh, but you know somebody out there will go to the wrong conclusion. God's Old Testament people who lived under a theocracy were often justified in tearing down idols on public display. However, we don't live in a theocracy, nor are we called to set one up. So we must respect the property rights and the religious liberty of our neighbors. Well, what if you've made your family into an idol? Should you leave your spouse or abandon your children? No. We must still fulfill our God-given responsibilities. The Bible says that those who do not provide for their families are worse than non-believers. So don't change your family, change your heart. And if you've made your career into an idol, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to quit your job tomorrow. Don't make sudden career changes without much thought, prayer, and godly counsel. Final qualification, fighting sexual sin, which can be a powerful idol, does not excuse hatred or violence. We fight sexual sin by avoiding sexual temptation or fleeing from it, as we are commanded in Thessalonians, not through violence or hatred. In this verse, John is commanding us to guard our hearts against idols. Some people think it's unloving to warn people about their their idols. How could something they love so much be bad? Well, we know that John gives this command with a heart of love. He uses the term of endearment, term of endearment, little children. He's like a parent warning his child not to play with matches and not to run with scissors. He does that not because he wants to spoil our fun, but because he wants what's best for us. God prohibits and warns against our sin, against our idols, because he loves us. Let me speak to Christians here today. Some of you aren't bearing much fruit for the kingdom of God because of your struggle with idols. Don't you see that they're holding you back? They're making it harder for you to glorify God with your life. Guard your heart from idols. And when you find idols in your life, prayerfully and humbly change your heart attitude about those idols 
by loving Christ supremely, loving Christ above all. Remember the gospel. Christ suffered and died on the cross to save you from your idols so that you could worship and enjoy the true God. How dare we worship ourselves or someone or something else besides our dear Savior? Now, let me speak to non-Christians. We usually have some non-believers in the service, and we hope that you always feel welcome here. Some of you are in danger of spending an eternity in hell if you keep worshiping idols rather than the true God. Whether they take the form of another religion, of pleasure, of yourself, or your pride, your idols will keep you from heaven. Heed the words of Christ when he said, What shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Turn from your idols in repentance and turn to Christ in faith. And if you have questions about how to do that, please talk to one of us. Reach out to the church. We would love to explain from you from the scriptures how you can repent and believe in Jesus. Whatever happened to Gollum? What became of that poor, pitiable creature who was so obsessed with his idol, the ring? Well, according to the last book of Tolkien's trilogy, Gollum bided his time, lurking and lusting, until Frodo hesitated for a moment to throw the ring into the molten lava of Mount Doom. Then Gollum sprang, jumped on Frodo, bit off his ring finger, and then, clutching his precious ring, he fell from the precipice into the fire below, destroying both the ring and himself. Where does worshiping idols lead? Eternal flames. Let's stand and close in prayer. Lord, we confess our idolatry. As John Calvin said, our nature is a perpetual factory of idols. We are so good at turning your good gifts into idols or longing for substitutes for the one holy true God. Help us turn from our idols to love and serve the true God through Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can be delivered from the slavery of idolatry because of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. Lord, may these words from the hymn writer William Cooper be our heart's sincere prayer today. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.